0: Thank you, Joe, for that scripture reading, and want to say thank you to the men who um, got busy when they found out that our uh, electricity would be out. If you are just joining us, you or you came in late, you may not have even noticed. Uh, but we don't have electricity today. Um, the guys got some generators going and somehow worked their voodoo magic, and we have um, PowerPoint and lights and fans, and we're even live streaming at present. So. Uh, Thank you to all those guys who uh, got on that. Um, I'm all the more convinced that if the zombie apocalypse comes upon us, I've got the right group of guys to hang out with, okay? Uh, We're gonna be just fine. Um, Secondly, wanted to say a quick thing. Um, 14 years ago today, my life changed forever because my oldest son, Peyton, was born, all right? Today is Peyton's birthday. So, we can say happy birthday to Peyton. Happy birthday. It's rare that one of my kids has a birthday on a Sunday, so I thought I'd highlight that. And uh, they are having a youth snack attack tonight where I hope they um, have some sort of grave and embarrassing initiation party planned. Okay? All right. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Joe read that in our presence today. If you're just joining us, uh, we are working through the book of Exodus, um, section by section. And we've arrived today at our study of chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Let's pray, and then we'll get into the study of the Bible this morning. Father, thank you for this passage of Scripture. I pray that you would um, help us, Lord, to see uh, with eyes of faith what you have in this passage. Perhaps you're putting your call on some among us here today. And perhaps for years they've been making excuses as to why they can't fulfill what you're asking of them. Perhaps, Lord, you will use this text in Moses' story to um, assure them and to help them reach out for the commission that you have for them. For we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, children, I knew that you wouldn't have uh, children's church today, so I thought I would tell you a quick little story that might make you laugh. Maybe it will, maybe it won't. But my kids know that I like to hike on the Utah trails, I like to run on the Utah trails, I go all over the trails, and toward the end of the summer, there's a phenomenon, there's something that happens that you get very used to very quickly. If you don't like this, don't go on Utah trails. You know what that is, children? You will see snakes, okay? I've come up on some snakes, I've come up on a couple rattlesnakes a couple times that have scared me to death, One time I almost ran right on top of a rattlesnake. I dove off the trail into a bramble bush and maybe wished after that I had tangled with the snake instead. Okay? Most of the time when you see snakes, you see these little black ones. They're small. They're about the size of a large earthworm. (laughs) And they zip across the trail right in front of you. In fact, I think they play a game. They like to say, okay, how close can we get to having him step on us before we come right up under his feet? And it's always a little heart pounding, but you get a little used to it. And there's all these little black snakes everywhere and they zip across the trail. Well, one day I was leading a hike. We had a team out from Indiana. They were a nice team. They were helping up at Pioneer Bible Camp and I took this team out and one of the helpers on the team was a big fella. He was probably 6'3 or 6'4, big burly guy. He was a farmer, and he took great pride in being a farmer. Many different times he told me that he was a farmer, and he had big, broad shoulders, and he was fond of wearing these trucker caps, you know the kind of hats I'm talking about? And he rolled his sleeves up, and he he had all the look of a farmer. And we were walking along, and he was right behind me and talking with me and asking me questions, and right behind him was his new wife. She was very petite. We were hiking up at Snow Basin, and suddenly, one of those little black snakes zipped right behind me and right in front of him. And this large farmer boy let out a scream that my six-year-old daughter, Gracie, would have been proud of. He went, ah! and if that wasn't enough, children, he reached around and he took a hold of his new wife and thrust her in front of him and used her as a shield to ward off the glorified earthworm that had raced in front of him. Let's just say whatever macho look he had put on to that point was suddenly lost. Well, today, in our text, we are going to see a man run away from a snake. But this snake was much different than the little tiny snake that our friend ran from. This is a big snake. It's a The, the Hebrew word is an ahushta. It's a big snake, probably a very terrifying snake. And God is going to use that snake to encourage Moses. But let's Get in the text and see that. We've entitled this sermon, God's Unswerving Call. Now, we've noticed that God had asked Moses to lead his people out of Egypt into the Promised Land. And you might remember that Moses gives five reasons why he should not be the one to go. Moses has been in Midian for 40 years, and we're told that he's now probably about 80 years old. And in chapter 3, verses 1 through 10, he meets the Lord in this burning bush. God says that his name is I am. I am Yahweh. I am has sent you. The bush is on fire but not consumed. This is showing us that God is self-existent. No beginning, no end. And the timeless, self-existent God with the name I am says, Moses, go, I'm sending you. And so Moses says, well, God, I I think you've got the wrong guy. I think you've got the wrong guy. And here's five reasons why. And the first reason that Moses gives, we discovered last time we were in this passage, he says, who am I? I'm not the right man for the job. And God assures him that he knows who Moses is, and he wants Moses to be the one to go. He says, if they ask me about your name, what shall I tell them? And we discovered that he's not saying they don't know that your name is Yahweh. He's saying, what is it about your name Yahweh that would set their minds at ease, that would help them understand that you were truly active? And God says that, tell them, I am has sent you. I am what I am. I will be what I will be. I'm the timeless one. I know the end from the beginning. I don't have a beginning. I don't have a creator. I don't have an end. I'm in control of this situation. I will be for you whatever you need me to be. That's what God is telling him with that name. And then Moses has a third and fourth excuse as to why he shouldn't be the one to go. Now, children, I had a basketball coach, and he used to tell us boys this. He would say, excuses are just lies with a little bit of truth mixed in. Okay? And he told us that so we would stop making excuses and start playing more basketball. Now, Moses is going to give some excuses here. And these are, in fact, sort of lies with truth mixed in. Now, the first thing that... And we're going to cover those third and fourth objections today, and we'll cover the other ones, uh, the final one, uh, next week. So in chapter 4, verses 1 through 10, we come on this third objection. And here's what Moses says. Moses' objection is essentially this. His first objection was, what about the people? His second objection is, what about you? Or I'm sorry, his first objection was, what about me? And then his second one was, what about you? And now his third one is, what about the people? What about the people? Now, Moses is going to give here a triple negative. This is not unprecedented in Hebrew, but it's important, and it stands out. You'll want to read. He says, behold, they will not believe me, and in our translations, it says, or listen. The translators have smoothed that out. There's also a not before listen as well. They will not believe me. They will not listen to me, for they will say, the Lord did not appear to you. And the Hebrew word for not is low, and it appears in a prominent place in each of those phrases. Not they will believe me. Not they will listen to me. Not they will say, I did not send you. No, no, no. No. Triple negative. God, these people will not hear. The structure of these knots is really important. You might want to circle them because they're very important grammatically. Now, he says they will not believe me. He, the word believe, he says they, they, they're not going to believe in me. They're gonna, the idea is they're not going to have any confidence in me as their leader. I'm going to go to them and say, the Lord has sent me. And they're they're going to be like, who are you? Now, admittedly, we have to say that Moses had some experience on this point. Do You remember a few chapters ago when he was 40, he went out to try to deliver his people. And they said, who made you judge over us? They didn't want him. And in future chapters, they won't want him. So Moses was not totally wrong on this point. But what Moses was neglecting to see was that God, in fact, would empower these people's hearts and open their minds to see what he would do. And so God says to Moses, "Okay, I'm going to give you some signs to show the people so that they will believe and they will listen and they will follow. God is going to give three signs, and before we get into the signs, I want us to make a few general observations about the signs. Okay, number one, the signs are all what we would call transformational signs. God changes one thing into another, and in the first two, back again. So he changes the staff into a snake, and then back into a staff. He changes the hand to leprous, and then back to healed. He changes the water to blood, and leaves it blood because he's trying to say something about that it's important that he does not change that back into water because he's trying to communicate something to the egyptians number 2 all three of these signs make use of regular everyday items moses what's that in your hand um a stick <laughs> I like to tease my children, there are a few things that breed in my front yard, and one of them is long sticks that the kids bring into the yard, and I say, children, why are there so many sticks in the yard, and they say, I don't know, dad, they just appeared there, and so I tell them, I say, you know what, at night, mommy must get up out of bed and go to the woods and gather sticks and put them in the yard, and then they say, no, it wasn't mommy, it was us, (laughs) sticks, they're so common, they're everywhere. People walk with walking sticks. They they use them, and Moses likely used this as his work as a shepherd to pull the wayward sheep back, to fend off beasts, to move some along who were straggling behind. It was a common thing, and God says, I just throw the stick on the ground. A the, the hand, a the right hand, what's just right there? It's right there for use. It's so incredibly common, somebody's right hand. Everybody has a right hand except for somebody who something tragic has happened to. It's so ordinary. Or water. just The Nile River was so common in that region. In fact, Egypt then as now is one of the most densely populated nations on the earth because everybody lives within just a couple miles of the Nile River. This nation is utterly dry except for the little corridor that the Nile runs. Well, the Nile runs the other way. The Nile runs from south to north. And so the Nile was just so common, so available to everybody. It flowed really gently so everybody could get in it. And so God takes these very common things and uses them as signs, the implication being I am what I am. I will use whatever I have available to me. No matter how unusual, no matter how common, no matter how paltry in your eyes, because it's me, I will make use of it. No matter how normal it might be, it can become exceptional in my hands. Something that's very common can be special when I decide to use it. That's the implication God is getting after. Number three, all three of these signs are highly symbolic. Okay, All three signs are highly symbolic. They're meant to teach a lesson. Now, what are those symbols? That brings us to our next slide. What is the symbolism in these three items? Well, first of all, Moses has this staff. And God says, I want you to throw the staff on the ground, and the staff will become a snake. This staff in Moses' hand becomes... Something of his symbol of power. In Exodus chapter five, eight, verse five, he lifts up the staff and it initiates the plagues, or it takes the plagues away. In uh the in chapter 14, 6, Moses raises the staff and the Red Sea parts. In chapter 17, 6, there's a they've gone into the wilderness, and there's no water anywhere, and they come up to a rock. Now, you know. I've asked, I've asked uh, our congregation this question before. If I say, show me visually with your hands the size of a rock, what would you show me? And I had some people say, oh, a rock is this, a rock is this, this, this. This word rock is for more like a boulder, like the side of a mountain face, okay? A huge rock. And Moses stood back in front of this rock as like a natural amphitheater, and he struck it with his And suddenly, water began to gush out of it. Now, Moses came to another rock later, and he wasn't supposed to strike that when he was supposed to speak to it, and he disobeyed, and there were consequences for that. But the staff became symbolic of Moses' power, of God's work in his hand, and of the work that was flowing through Moses. Number two, the serpent. Moses threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent. I want you to know that commentators have spilled far too much ink trying to decide if this was a large serpent or a small, if it was a um, poisonous serpent or not. It doesn't really matter. (laughs) The the snake was probably the size of the staff, which would be a pretty big snake. Um, Moses reached out and grabbed the tail of it, and it became back his staff again. What's important about the fact that it became a serpent is the symbol of the serpent in Egyptian theology. One of Egypt's gods was a serpent. And Pharaoh, in fact, wore a headdress, whom Moses was talking to, that had a serpent coiled on top of it, and as you might imagine, the serpent was a symbol of wisdom. And so when Moses threw that staff on the ground and it became a serpent, and then he could take it up again at his own command, what was Moses communicating to Pharaoh? He was communicating, my God is far more powerful than your serpent God. And whatever you think the serpent God is, it, is, it pales into the, in comparison to the might of Almighty God. That's what God was trying to demonstrate for Pharaoh and for the people who were also superstitious and may have been prone to believing some of this Egyptian stuff. God is showing them his superiority. The third thing is the leprous skin. Now, again, commentators have debated for a long time of what the exact medical condition was. And again, I think that's probably beside the point. We're not sure what kind of skin condition it was. Leprosy is used to describe a lot of different types of skin diseases. The bigger point is that leprosy, especially in the book of Exodus, especially in Moses' writings, is a sign of divine judgment. For example, when Miriam, Moses' older sister, has something bad to say about Moses, she turns leprous as a punishment. And Moses intercedes for her, and God restores her. But it was a sign of God's displeasure. And when Moses stuck his hand into his cloak and pulled it out and it was leprous, and then stuck it in and pulled it out again and it was clean, what God was symbolizing there is he can bless or curse at his own choosing. He was going to bless the people of Israel and he was going to curse the people of Egypt. And he had the power to bring these curses upon these people should he want to. And so here again, God is trying to demonstrate his power over all things nature and all things supernatural. And then the last thing is he says, I want you to take out a cup of water and pour it on the ground and it will become blood. Now remember, this is the one sign where it didn't get changed back. Now, the reason God wanted that, do we remember the pains that Moses went to in the first and second chapter of Exodus to tell us how badly the Egyptians were suffering? What was the pinnacle thing that Pharaoh did that showed just how evil he was and how bad it had gotten for the, Egypt, for the Israelites. What well, was this? The people were commanded to throw Hebrew babies into the Nile. This was infanticide on a national level. And the voices of these murdered children cried out to God. And God is saying, the blood of my people's babies, is in that water and it's crying out to me. There is blood on your hands. And when Moses took the water of that Nile and poured it out on the ground, there was the guilt of the Egyptians laid out before them and he didn't change it back. Moses had written earlier in the book of Genesis, You remember the story of Cain and Abel? Abel made a good sacrifice, Cain a bad one. Cain got mad. His sacrifice wasn't accepted. And so he murdered his brother. What did God ask him? Where's your brother? And Cain said, am I my brother's keeper? And what did God say? The ground which soaked up your brother's blood cries out to me. And here... God is telling Pharaoh much the same thing. God is telling his own people much the same thing. All of these atrocities that you have committed against my people, these atrocities that you've had committed against you, it hasn't been done to a blind eye. I've seen it. And I'm acting, I'm responding. And so there was in this symbol a foretaste of what God was going to do to that nation. Well, Moses seems to be satisfied in a limited way. <laughs> but Moses, you know, we're excuse factories, aren't we? You know, if we don't want to do something, um, you know, we, we, we won't go do it because it's raining. And then we don't do it the next day because it's, the sun is out and it's too hot. And we won't go do it the next day because, well, we were tired from resting the previous two days. And so, you know, just take it easy one more day. There's always an available excuse that we can conjure up. And Moses is no different. He's like, okay, who who am am I? Moses answers that. Who who are you? God answers that. What about the people? God answers that. And Moses goes, okay, okay. Here's one. And this is a combination of the two. And he actually lays blame this time on God. He says in verse 10, let's turn over there very quickly. He says, But Moses said to the Lord, O Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant. But I am slow of speech and of tongue. So Moses is saying, there is something wrong with the way that I speak. I am not qualified to be a spokesman of yours. Now, again, commentators have debated what exactly Moses means when he says that he is slow of speech and slow of tongue he has never been and hasn't been even since God called him. There are many different theories. One is that Moses was putting on sort of a false humility, that he spoke perfectly fine, and this was a way of, this was inappropriate self-deprecation, a humble brag, if you will. And I can't do it. Knowing perfectly well he was capable of good speech. There was a, There's a theory that he had um, a speech impediment, that he really literally couldn't get the words out. I read one commentator that theorized that Moses had a cleft palate and couldn't speak correctly. There's another theory that Moses had poor language abilities. He's, he would be saying, in a sense, my Egyptian is rusty. I haven't spoken their language in 40 years, and no doubt it's changed, and my language has changed, and I I can't be the one to go into Pharaoh's court and do that. I, I don't speak their language anymore. It could be that he's saying, and this is another possibility, that he's slow of wit. Okay, like, we would put it this way. We would say, Pastor, I don't think well on my feet and in the repartee, the back and forth, the banter that will need to take place with Pharaoh. I'm not gifted at that. He's going to hit me with something, a a debate, a question, and I'm not going to know what to say. All of those are possibilities. I have a, uh, let's call it a soft opinion. Okay, let's call it a soft opinion. I think if we look what comes next at how God reassures him, that gives us a clue as to what Moses' difficulty might be. So let's look ahead and see how God comforts him. Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing her blind? Is it not I, the Lord, or is it not I, Yahweh? Now therefore go, and I will be with your mouth and teach you what you shall speak. God tells him, your mouth is exactly the way I wanted it to be. Your mind is exactly what I want it to be. And just like the stick, a thing so common and looked down upon in my hands becomes something of great supernatural power. Your mouth, so common, perhaps deformed in some way, in my hands becomes a mighty tool for good. It's not what you're doing, it's what I will do through your mouth. And in my opinion, Moses had some form of either slow or stuttered speech, it wasn't just shyness, but it was some form of speech impediment that made it hard for him to get the words out. And that's why God is telling him, whatever physical limitations your mouth has, I'm not only aware of that, I made it that way. And in the future, I'm going to overcome it. Either I'll loosen your tongue, or the people hearing you will hear words that don't take into account the speech impediment coming to me. Moses going to speak was an act of faith and a miracle, just as the rest of the story of Exodus would be. The lesson that God is trying to tell Moses, it's not your mouth, it's what I will do through it. God, of course, gives him a rhetorical question. Moses says, I've got this this speech problem. I, I think it was a what we would call a speech impediment. I might be wrong. Who knows? But whatever the problem was in Moses' mind, God says, I know, I know. And I made it that way. I hear your objection, and I want you to know that that makes you the perfect person for it. God gives a second answer. He promises his presence. Now, that's not to be easily sloughed off. God says, I'm going to be there with it. I'm going to go with you. This isn't your job alone. I'm going to be working in that situation. And the the third thing, he says, I'll teach you what to say. I will give you great wisdom. I will give you great words. I'll give you incredible insight. You will have the exact word for the exact moment. What you need to do now is get up and go. Go. And do it. And what God is doing is he is taking all the burdens that Moses had put on his shoulders and was allowing himself to be weighed down by. And God takes them all off of Moses and puts them on himself and says, I'm going to be obligated to do all these things that worry you. I just want you to go and watch me work. It's astounding. The reassurances that God gives to Moses. Well, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this in this sense? Friends, I you need to know something. By the way, in a moment, we're going to turn to four different passages in either 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. And I'd really like you to turn with me to all of those passages. So have your Bibles out and your fingers ready. We're going to close with that. We're going to turn to those places. So, But before we get there, here's what we need to know. In my experience, in our experience as we walk through the Bible, God very rarely calls us to do the things for him that we're naturally good at. Okay, Let's let that sink in for just a moment. God very rarely calls us to do the things for him that we naturally are gifted at and take to. It's very often the case that when God wants us to do something for him or for his people it involves us doing something that we're not sure we have the capacity to do that we don't feel qualified for now yes sometimes God takes our talents and our gifts and he uses those but most of the time he's calling us out of our weakness most of the time he's calling us out of, out of the things that we consider our biggest detriment. And God overcomes them all. He just bowls them right over. Now, how do we know that? Turn to turn with me first to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. We're going to turn to four passages. We'll go through them very quickly. First Corinthians is in the New Testament. He goes, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians. So if you find Acts or Romans, start turning toward the back, and you'll land on 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians very quickly. This is the Apostle Paul writing these words. The Apostle Paul is a brilliant man. Much like Moses, he was a man who probably was not a very good speaker. He's criticized for being bold in his letters and weak in his speech. These very Corinthians don't want him anymore. They want to go get a professional speech guy. And Paul is writing to them. 1 Corinthians 1, verses 26 through 29, he says, Brothers, consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is calling you to do something and you say, I'm I'm not wise enough, I'm not strong enough, I'm not capable enough, I'm not noble enough to do that task. And the Bible says, Welcome to the club. This is how God prefers to work so that no human being will boast in his presence. Let's turn again. This time we go to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5. Let's all turn there. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 verse 5. Paul says such is the confidence that we have through faith toward Through Christ toward God. Verse 4. Now on to verse 5. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is in God who has made us competent to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. Paul says I you ask me, are you sufficient to be an apostle? I would say no. I'm not even sufficient to be a table server in the kingdom. But God makes us sufficient ministers of the new covenant. It's about God's work in you and through you. And no matter how you might feel, God is giving you sufficient ability to pursue his work. Let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, just a page over. 4 verse 7, Paul says, we have this treasure in jars of clay, cheap, throwaway, common clay pots. We have treasure. The pearl of great price in a jar of clay. To show that our surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We're dust. We'll return to dust. But God gives you something so special. He gives you his sufficient Savior who works in and through you. And suddenly now you possess great treasure to do his surpassing work. Now let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12, verse 9. Turn over there. This is a famous passage, Paul has a thorn in the flesh. It's, we don't know what the thorn is. Paul, in my opinion, leaves it deliberately vague so that you can put yourself in his shoes no matter what your tribulation or trial or thorn might be. As one Puritan writer put it, we all have a crook in our lot. We all have something about our lives that we wish we could change. We all have a weakness. We all have a deficiency. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9, Paul's talking about this thorn. He has begged God three times, he says in verse 8, I pleaded that the Lord should take it away, but he didn't. God did not take away that thorn. Verse 9, but he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness, so that the power of Christ may rest on me, my grace is sufficient. Friends, last thought: Do you remember you remember Jacob all the way back in the book of Genesis? Do you remember that night he was scheduled to meet Esau the following day, and he thought he was done for; he thought he was going to die. And so he wrestles. Actually, he didn't wrestle the spirit; the an angel wrestled him. Grabbed him, wrestled, they grappled all night. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the angel reached out his finger and touched his hip socket and knocked his hip out of socket. The angel blesses him and moves on. Friends, do you know what the angel did not do? The angel did not put his hip back in place. For the rest of Jacob's life, he walked with a discernible limp. And that is how God wanted him to lead. God wanted that man to lead with a limp. I don't know what God has for you. You say, I'm weak, I'm hurt, I'm broken, I got a limp. God's grace is sufficient for you. And he will work through you so that the power is attributed to God and not to you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this passage. Help us to understand it all the more and more importantly, may we glorify you as we live it out. Lord, we are weak, but you are strong. And I pray that you would show your strength in us, not only now, but through the rest of this week. For we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.